pretty rampant. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Rampant Rundown, a socio-political podcast hosted by Glasgow's best political queen, yes, me, Lady Rampant. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in two weeks ago now to our episode with the Scottish Green Party. Now don't forget, you can catch a new episode of the Rampant Rundown every Wednesday evening at 5pm on all good places that podcasts are found. You know where to find us now, surely we're almost at the end of the season. (laughs) So if you don't know by now, you should. Anyways, this season on the Rampant Rundown, we are speaking to affiliates from each political party in Scotland to find out what they are offering the LGBTQ plus community in the upcoming elections. Which, by the way, in case you didn't already know, are tomorrow. <laughs> Jeez, they're no longer coming around, aren't they? Make sure you get your arse out to the polling booth tomorrow and get your ballots in the box, please. Now this week we are speaking with Scottish Labour and I'll be speaking to an affiliate from their LGBTQ plus group to find out what they are promising the LGBTQ plus community in the upcoming elections. But before we do, as I do each week, I thought we would have a wee look at Labour's track record in Scotland and just to see from a quick perspective what they are offering the LGBTQ plus community. So let's rewind five years to the 2016 election and Labour only gained three constituency seats and 21 regional seats, giving them 24 MSPs in total. Now this is actually quite a big decrease from the 2011 election results and they lost 13 MSPs in 2016. And in fact, they were actually the party that lost the most seats um, in that election. So there you go. Now, in this election, their main commitments are to guarantee a job for every young Scot. They want to invest in the NHS to get cancer treatment back on track. They <laughs> Back on track? Do you hear my wee whistle there? Back on track? <laughs> Anyways, they want to deliver a comeback plan for education. They want to invest in green jobs. And they want to create a community recovery fund to invest in local areas. Now, his position on independence is that Labour will not support another Scottish independence referendum in the next five years, while the country is focused on recovering from COVID-19. But it believes that more powers should be given to local councils. Now, apparently, according to the manifesto, Labour believes in constitutional reform and it wants to reform and redesign the UK's democratic institutions. I'm really interested to see what that actually means in practice. But anyway, regarding the EU, Labour does uh, does not want to rejoin the EU, apparently. They want to develop a close relationship with the EU, as close as possible, um, but not to rejoin as an independent country or indeed part of the UK, which is quite a straight, strange position for Scottish Labour to have, considering Scottish people voted to remain in uh, the EU. So make it make sense. (laughs) Anyways, that's just some general information. But let's see about the LGBTQ plus community then. 
Now, Scottish Labour continues to support the aims of the TIE campaign, Time for Inclusive Education, a fantastic third sector organisation that we have, promoting LGBTQ plus equality and inclusive education in the school curriculum. They want to end the blood donation discrimination and they want to reform gender recognition law and demedicalise the process of uh, changing one's gender legally. Now, their manifesto doesn't mention too much about the LGBTQ plus community, actually. But actually, I think that's our cue to then go and speak to our very special guest of this week to find out some more. Okay, so moving on now to section two of the episode. And I am joined today by a representative from Scottish Labour's LGBTQ plus group. It's Jordan Fortenhauer. Woo! Hi. <laughs> Hi Jordan, how are you? I'm well, I'm well, how are you? I I'm very well, thank you very much. I'm excited to speak to you today. I feel like we've got lots to get through, we've got loads of yeah. questions and we're we're almost at the election day. Now it's so close and it feels like it's been going on for for weeks now and we're finally we're finally here. Finally here, yeah. <laughs> we absolutely are. So then you're a member of the LGBTQ plus group for Scottish Labour, is that right? Yeah. Yes, I'm the Campaign and Pride Officer at LGBT Labour Scotland. Um, yeah, I've done this role for a year or two. Not as much to do with COVID, meaning no prides yeah. and things like that, but we've kept ourselves busy with lots of campaigning, thankfully, even during COVID. Fantastic. And is it quite a big group for Labour or like, is it, does it have a lot of members? And things like yeah, that. we've got we've got a pretty good selection of members, um, yeah. both in the UK wide LGBT Labour, and also we've got a really thriving group in Scotland, um, and we've mm -hmm. got quite a lot of independence from LGBT Labour generally. So we mm -hmm. get onto our own thing. We've got I think around a hundred members, I would say. Um, okay, that number. But, yeah, <laughs> a, a pretty pretty good group going here. Fantastic. No, I'm glad to hear it then. Um, and a, a question that I that I ask uh, every guest each week is that what do you think Scottish Labour would do differently from the SNP if Labour were elected into government in Scotland right now? So I, I'm sure you would have heard our leader and Asawa talk a lot about the COVID recovery parliament. Yeah. And we've mentioned that a lot, but I, I really think that's crucially our focus. We've, we're coming out of, you know, something unprecedented as far as global health as far as its effect on jobs on education on basically every sector of society and so i think what scottish labor will do uniquely is really make a recovery from that our our focus the word recovery was by an order of magnitude the most common word found in our manifesto and i think that, that <laughs> so it, it, if you'll let me sort of make some more direct comparisons to the snp i suppose yeah um on COVID recovery we've got uh, you know, the most ambitious jobs guarantee scheme in the history of devolution, giving every young Scot who's unemployed, anyone who's been in long-term unemployment and unemployed disabled people a guarantee of a job. We're going to up benefits to give people grants for things like retraining and getting the skills they need. And I think that's crucial to recovery. But on all the other aspects of society that COVID's touched too, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon herself conceded that she took her eye off the ball on drug deaths. And I think that's, you know, Scotland's shame that that's was so high up on that and and we have a series of policies that i think will really go a, a, a way to addressing that things like safe consumption rooms for people so that they don't feel criminalized when they have to take drugs um things like moving from a prosecutorial model to one that's much more focused on harm reduction on things like child poverty we've got a series of policies that will really put that first and foremost i mean uh, nicholas Sturgeon's own constituency is quite high up as far as child poverty goes 
So we've got, um, we want to double the, the benefit for, for children, for example, up to 20 pounds. Um, and on things like education, I think the attainment gap's gotten wider over the past decade or so, and that's not good in my, in my own job. I work with yeah. people in schools and it's the way you're born should have no effect on the kind of education we receive. So mm-hmm. we want to look at, you know, the way curriculum for excellence works and try and come up with a new way of doing things that tries to lessen the attainment gap. But I think generally the theme, and I've spoken for a while here, so I'll just summarize now, but generally oh. the theme, uh, recovery from COVID, I'm yeah. really putting that first and foremost, because I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about independence in a second. But <laughs> even, even the people who are the strongest independent supporters in the SNP will concede that right now our focus should be on the recovery from COVID and we shouldn't be marching straight into talking about independence, even though we concede that some people do care an awful lot about that. But I think we can all agree on the recovery from COVID being our priority. Absolutely. And Nicola Sturgeon agrees on that herself. I think she's made exactly. it very clear that... Um, the re- guiding Scotland through the rest of the pandemic is her focus right now and mm-hmm. only when the recovery uh, we reach a stage in the recovery that it's, it's safe and stable to do so maybe then we can have a discussion about independence I know that's her viewpoint and I think that is I would say that's also my viewpoint and I think it's interesting there because we can talk about independence a little bit now but I you say about all aspects of society and how we should be focusing on all aspects of society and recovery within each of those aspects but I guess the argument of the SNP and one that I would also make is that the best recovery for Scotland is taken with decisions by the people in Scotland for the people of Scotland. And oftentimes uh, we might not be able to do that because of devolution or we might need to concede to Westminster. So Mm -hmm. I assume that you disagree with the argument, but what's your opinion then about having a recovery for Scotland that is going to best suit the interests of Scotland and not decisions taken by, by Westminster or elsewhere? Well, I mean, I don't think uh, a good political approach for anyone is telling people, you know, you can't have this and you shouldn't want that. So we're not here in the business of telling people that what they think the best recovery is, is, is wrong or misguided. We should really meet people where they are. But actually, on, on devolution, I want to push back on that a bit, because I think that COVID, uh, despite it, you know, all the horrible things it's brought, is has actually been a good example of how devolution works best. I mean, we've had uh, Scotland, Wales, and England doing different things on, on their COVID recovery. We've seen Nicola Sturgeon reopen at a different speed to, mm-hmm. to England and what Boris Johnson's done. And I'm sure SNP members and politicians would, would argue they need uh, more independence. And I understand why someone might want to argue that. But my personal opinion and the one that I yeah. think is shared by the majority of uh, Labour politicians is that, you know, devolution works. That doesn't mean it works perfectly right now and we shouldn't make some changes. But mm-hmm. I think that COVID has actually shown devolution working in the way that it was originally envisaged when the Scottish Parliament was formed. And that's people being able to make decisions for their particular their particular country. And we've seen Scotland make different decisions on COVID. And um, in many instances, Scotland has, for lack of a better term, performed better in their response to COVID in some respects and on some metrics. And that's because we've given people independence to make to make their own decisions. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very valid point. I think, in my opinion, of course, devolution doesn't go far enough and there's many more things that I would like to see the Scottish Parliament have powers to do. But uh, that is getting a wee bit off the elections and more into yeah. the constitutional debate. So we'll leave it at that. Thank you for, sure. <laughs> for your response. But just then coming back to the elections and coming back to politics in Scotland in general, I think over the years we have seen support uh, for Scottish Labour um, decreasing over the years just with the the seats in terms of those gained in Holyrood elections so my here's two questions my my first question is do you think that 
that's going to continue for Labour this year, or do you think that they, they might make some gains? And secondly, why do you think that the support has been decreasing? Do you think it's a direct influence of the SNP, or are there other factors at play? Yeah, so uh, to answer your first question, I think that my personal opinion, and the polls are looking quite good right now, is I think Scottish Labour will hopefully uh, overtake the Tories to be the official opposition. I think that would be good. It would be good for one, because obviously I do not support the Tories as a Scottish <laughs> Labour. Uh, I think you I know do. I don't either, so I would agree yes. with you on that. Um, but I, I think that the way that uh, Scottish Labour would, would challenge the SNP would be a, a lot more constructive and a lot more... Um, meaningful rather than what I think sometimes the the way that um, the Tories challenge uh, the SNP and which just turns everything into a binary constitutional debate which sort of leads me on to the second question which is you know why has Scottish Labour seen these uh, de a decrease in votes uh, over the past you know decade or so now I mean if you pull a hundred people off the street you're going to get a hundred different answers to this question of course so, yeah <laughs> this is just my opinion of course but I think generally speaking, we've found ourselves caught in between a constitutional debate where people want us to take opinions on one side or the other. If you look at Scottish Labour's membership, we have a wide range of opinions on independence among our, among our members. And I think that that's also true of Scotland, of course. I mean, uh, the polls go back and forth, but clearly there are a lot of people in Scotland who very, very strongly want independence. And there's a lot of people who see themselves more in line with the union. And I think Scottish Labour has been caught in between those two worlds. And what we now are trying to do and why I think we're increasing our the polls are looking good for us and why I think we'll increase is thinking about what everyone in Scotland can agree on and although people in Scotland have different views on the constitution I think that we can all agree on the need for a recovery we can all agree on prioritizing education prioritizing healthcare, and mm -hmm. I think that's what we're doing to increase our votes we're not letting ourselves get caught in a petty and rather unproductive constitutional debate mm -hmm. and I'm sure it would benefit a lot of people in Scotland for us to be caught in that debate, but we're not going to fall into the trap this time. And I think we're seeing the benefit of actually looking at where people's priorities lie. And in fact, I think the polling shows that people's priorities are, are more towards things like these recovery issues and not towards independence. But again, that's just my opinion. I'm sure some people yeah. have very different opinions on that recovery. And it's tough. I mean, um, there's all sorts of different ways you can approach this. But, but I think that staying away from that unproductive constitutional debate is the one that has been most fruitful for us as a party and yeah. why we went our way in the past. Yeah, and of course, in the Libras debates, we, we've seen uh, Anna Sarwar saying that, that they want to steer away from this conversation about mm -hmm. the, the constitutional debate and focus on recovery and other aspects. But the issue that I had with that is that that's because um, half of the country wants to have this debate and, and it, it is a debate that's been around for many years now and I don't think that just after one election or one government this debate is going to go away I think mm -hmm. it's a debate no matter the outcome in whatever 5, 10, 20 years may be I think it's a debate that's not really going away anytime soon and that's something that I that I disagreed with Anna Sarwar on in the Leaders debates when he was saying like, mm -hmm. we want to move away from the debate, we want to focus on everything else. I get that, I understand why everything else is so important as part of the recovery and crucial things like education and um, drug re rehabilitation and things like that. But I also believe that it's possible to do more, thing, more things than one at once. And it is, yeah. um, it is a debate, of course, that I think isn't going away anywhere anytime soon. So I mean, <laughs> for I any party. Of course. Yeah. I, I just think as far as where we are right now, yeah. we're still in the midst of COVID. 
and this is a COVID election, for lack of a better term. And I'm not saying that we cannot ever talk about the Constitution, but I think yeah. it has a tendency to be a vacuum in the way it emerges in debates. I mean, it can take up, you know, vast amounts of people's time talking about that in, for example, these leadership debates that are happening now, yes. with really pertinent questions to answer that might be linked to the Constitution, but are more about the, the issues for which people talk about the Constitution, like education and healthcare. So although yeah. I, I'm saying, no, don't talk about it at all, it's banned, it <laughs> but it has a tendency when brought up to take up more time than mm -hmm. necessary, and for lack of a better term, serve as a distraction. And I, I don't think and Asawa wants to be distracted by that because there are more important priorities both to him and to the people of Scotland. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very fair point. And sticking with your, your point there about Anna Sarwar and some priorities, um, I know that Anna Sarwar's family business doesn't actually pay its workers a living wage because they're not obliged to do so. And I, I believe the business itself doesn't actually have an official trade union. But of course, what we've seen in the past as well is Labour brand itself as a party for the many and not the few. So mm. given this backdrop, then how can people trust Scottish Labour that they would defend workers' rights or indeed the few that we have here in Scotland? Well, I hear what you say about the, the concerns people have about an Asawa's family business, but I, I suppose my response to that would be firstly that they do recognise trade unions and they're in, a, they're in discussions with trade unions to increase the um, conditions for work is there, but Anasawa is not uh, an employee or an owner of that business himself. He was okay. a dentist and then he was an MP. And I think that it's only fair to look at his personal record as opposed to linking him to uh, the organization run by his family. And I mean, personally speaking, looking at our manifesto, looking at what we're promising and looking at what Anasawa is committing himself to, I have no doubt that he would put the interests of the many, i.e not the richest 1% first. So things such as the fact that we would not give contracts, if we were in government, we would not give government contracts to companies that do not pay workers a minimum wage. We would fight for proper trade union representation. I mean, the Labour Party is the political wing of the trade union movement in a way that isn't true of other parties. We have those historic links there. And I mean, the, the policies I spoke about earlier, the jobs guarantee, ensuring that everyone has the means to provide for themselves are things that are committed in our manifesto in a way that is much clearer and much more concrete than I suppose a, a link you could draw with, you know, someone's family business on the mm -hmm. side. I, I would focus on the, the substance of our manifesto. And I think on that, we have good priorities and care about the few. But I do understand why people might have doubts about labor in the past. I know that um, you know, in the past, maybe people, Labour used to behave differently, or maybe people have some thoughts about the way Labour behaved in the past. But looking at what we're offering now, I think mm -hmm. that we're a different party from what people might suspect. Okay, again, yeah, no, a, a very fair point. That was a bit of a cheeky question from me, sure. <laughs> I must say. But it was also something I was talking about it with my dad, and we were in the mm -hmm. car. And sometimes I do this, sometimes I'll speak to my parents and I'll say, so if, if you could ask Scottish Labour something, what would you ask them? And uh, my dad and I had got into a discussion about this, and I thought, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask that. So yeah, a bit of a cheeky question, but I think uh, you answered that very well. But I guess, obviously, the focus of this podcast is to focus on the LGBTQ plus community. And indeed what um, each party is promising for the LGBTQ plus community, what kind of policies we're seeing uh, and what kind of uh, promises that are being made for the next five years. So my question is then, what are Labour promising the LGBTQ plus community in the upcoming elections? Well, we've got what I think is a really great manifesto. 
on uh, LGBTQI plus rights. We're going to reform and demedicalize the process of gender recognition. Uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, trans rights later, so I'll park that for a second. But we're also banning conversion therapy. We want to work with the Thai campaign for uh, LGBT inclusive education to roll that out further and show that's operating in the way it should in schools, because um, I think that's just such a great campaign and something we should be giving 100% support to. We're also going to end discrimination in blood donation, which is just a ridiculous relic of some past that. It is, it is. It's crazy that it's still around, isn't it? It's bizarre. It's something you forget about sometimes and then you realise and it just seems like something from ancient history. Well, yeah. we're going to end that, that discrimination, which I think is great. <laughs> um, and we're also going to provide legal recognition for non-binary people. And I think that's important too because um, the non-binary community is often overlooked and they shouldn't be because they, they face horrible discrimination and we should allow them legal recognition. So that's just a selection of the things we're offering. Um, mm -hmm. I think that I, I'm really pleased as someone involved in campaigning with the party to develop what's in this manifesto. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be prouder of what we're offering and I think it's great. And I'm really proud to campaign on this manifesto on LGBTQI plus rights. Good. That, that's really refreshing to hear as well. And you, you mentioned about campaigning then. So through your involvement with the LGBTQ plus group for, for Labour Party, I think it's Scot LGBTQ plus Labour Scotland or Scotland Labour, I'm not sure. But through yeah. your work then with, with the group, what is it exactly that you do for campaigning and what sort of work goes on behind the scenes maybe that we don't oh. see that LGBTQ plus Labour are doing? Yeah, so I, I really, I'm really glad you asked this question because we do quite a lot of work. Um, to sort of go through a couple of things, we have a, um, a series of, uh, I mean, we are doing a bunch of campaigns to, right now to secure commitments from candidates on things such as uh, ending conversion therapy. I know that um, some organizations are asking for commitments on candidates on issues like that. So we're ensuring that our candidates are in line on issues like that. And I think it's great to secure commitments like this in an election period because we can hold our representatives to them later. We're also Absolutely. doing things such as uh, education. Um, we have met with MSPs in the past to talk to them about issues because a lot of MSPs don't even know where to start on, on issues such as trans rights. So I think it's important to provide that kind of education both to MSPs and to um, you know our membership generally. Uh, it's something we're, we're focusing a lot on recently um, because I think uh, the Holyrood Parliament has been bad on this on every party is just representation of LGBTQI plus MSPs and we could all do better every party and having more individuals because you know we need a seat around the table so we've been yeah. really pushing for selection in places we can win of candidates who identify as LGBTQI plus and I think we've done some good work there obviously like any party we we've got further we can go but really trying to get people a seat at the table there so we've got um, for example education we run for people who might want to run to be councillors or MSPs we run campaign sessions like phone banks for our LGBTQI plus candidates themselves once they've been selected and really just a, a campaigning group to try and get that representation going further because it's so important. Yeah absolutely and I think that just also highlights the importance of the the these lgbtq plus groups that exist to every party because like you mentioned an interesting point there about msps not really knowing where to go to first of all and, and mm -hmm. I, I mean obviously as a, a gender queer gay drag queen to me it, it, these issues are always in my head anyway but i forget that maybe the, the cisgender straight candidate who wants to maybe be an ally or wants to help out maybe doesn't even know where to start or might not even have any lgbtq plus friends so i think that 
um, yeah, I think it shows the importance of these groups that we have, and they they definitely shouldn't be um, underestimated at all when and our fight exactly. for equality and, here in Scotland. And listen, you know what? As hard as we're working, the bigoted groups in Scotland are also sending emails trying to get meetings with MSPs. So it's not only that some people don't even know where to start but want to be allies. It's that yeah. we're fighting against active disinformation from the other side too. Yeah. And I'm sure you've noticed that with um, your work in the SNP because there's no party that it doesn't have people trying to, you know, you know, LGB alliance or whatever, trying to email them and meet with them. Yeah. I think it's that makes it doubly important that we push back on that and try and get that education out there because well-meaning people might be given misinformation, which leads them to believe you know, nonsense and nonsense things about, you know, fear-mongering about trans people and horrible stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, it's 2021, like, disinformation and fake news is so last year we don't want any of that in scotland <laughs> like that's not worse it exactly no like <laughs> yeah we don't want any fake news like we just want to have a progressive nice country why do these people need to like spread fake news and false information at, at, at the expense of minorities as well of course exactly. which is you unfortunately usually the case um and like you mentioned there that we've seen fear-mongering around the trans community and 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 different issues in scotland which is a very it's a very toxic aspect of politics that we've seen in Scotland over the last few years. And actually, Monica Lennon from uh, Labour, she believes that the SNP has failed the trans community in some aspects. So my question then would be, how can how can Scottish Labour improve the lives of trans people? And indeed, I think you touched on it there, but what is their position on gender recognition reform? Great. So again, I'm really glad you asked that. I mean, Monica Lennon, I, I agree with her that the SNP has failed trans people, but I also think that it does us no favours as, you know, politically active Scottish people to say that it is a problem uniquely to one party and not another party. So I think the approach should always be to say, how do we solve this problem by working together? But I yeah. do think the SNP has, has made failures here, and I'm glad to see them moving in the right direction in, in some respects. But what would what would Scottish Labour do? I, I think I want to make some specific points and then end with a general one. So the specific <laughs> points are that, um, as I said, we would reform and I think crucially demedicalize the process of gender recognition. Right now, it takes an awfully long time. It's demeaning. You're put through ridiculous questions that are very circular and are basically set up to make you fail. And it's just a horrible process that we would massively simplify and demedicalize. We've also secured some commitments on things like looking at the waiting times of, um, of gender identity clinics because it's just it's just far too long. Um, we'd also uh, push for you know um, just inclusive education, as I said, which is a really important thing. So both yeah. on the practical level of you know making the waiting times the way that trans people interact with the medical system fairer and safer but also the education necessary. So from a young age, you are, you know, taught the right thing to, um, taught the right way to engage with trans people. And I think young people are generally a lot more progressive now than they were 10 years ago. I'm always astounded when I go to schools <laughs> that, you know, how things are moving. So I think that it's, it's, it's not a difficult job at schools to get that education going. But the general points I want to make above and beyond yeah. our focuses on, you know, drastically reforming the GRA is that um, something I'm struck by whenever I interact with Anasawa on equalities issues is the way he speaks from experience about his uh, the way he's engaged with people on issues of discrimination and bigotry, um, which is a horrible, tragic thing to have someone say they've experienced. And obviously that's that's horrible. 
and you might say, well, the, the racism an Asawa has experienced is different from transphobia, and that's, that's correct, it is different. But something an Asawa says is an important value for him is when you're talking about an oppressed group, when you're talking about a marginalized group, you should let them lead the conversation on their own marginalization. And I think that's a lesson an Asawa has learned from experience in his issues with um, racism and Islamophobia and something he would apply to his engagement with the trans community. And that's something he said at our LGBT hustings that we ran and uh, when during the leadership uh, campaign between him and Monica Lennon, something mm -hmm. Monica Lennon also echoed. So we were, we were very pleased at the end of that, that whoever ended up our leader would be sound on trans rights. And I, I think that's just an important general point to make because mm -hmm. Someone might not know all the details about gender recognition, but if someone like Anasawa puts the voices of trans people in the lead on that conversation, I think that's the most we can ask for, and that really helps um, move things in the right direction. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it goes beyond just having a seat at the table. It's actually leading the conversation. So I think yeah. that I think that that's a, a very important point that you made there. Um, but that brings us to the end of the questions today. Jordan, thank you very much for joining me. It's been lovely to chat to you today. Yes, lovely. Uh, great to chat. And <laughs> glad we could get this in before the election, which is, I can't believe it's, you know, a couple of days away now. It feels like it's taken months and months. But yes, great. Lovely to chat. I know. It does. I'm actually really excited to see the just the outcome this year and the results like I've been talking about it on the podcast for weeks now so I am intrigued to see to see what the parliament is going to look like for the next five years as I'm sure you are too as well but thank you very much Jordan it's been lovely to chat to you and it's uh it's bye for now bye thank you so that brings us now to the close of this week's episode. I want to say thank you very much to our special guest, Jordan, for joining me this week. It was lovely to speak to him and hear what Labour are offering the LGBTQ plus community. I also want to say thank you to you for sticking with us right to the end again. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and it was another one to add to your list. Don't forget, you can follow The Rampant Rundown on Instagram to keep up to date with all of the information and posters and everything else like that each week that we will be posting to keep you updated we also have an email address the rampant rundown at outlook.com so if you want to discuss anything that we spoke about today in the episode or you just want to have a chit chat in general then by all means of course drop us an email and either myself or tom will pick that up now don't forget the elections are tomorrow so please it is so important that you go out and vote and you tell your family and your friends and everyone else anyone who will listen to get out to the polling booth and get your votes in the box next week i will be back joined with tom our tech guy here at the rampant rundown and we will be doing another rampant rundown roundup <laughs> of the scottish elections to see what the outcome was which parties made gains who lost some seats and any other interesting facts and figures about the elections to tie in this whole scottish election campaign and of course to tie in our podcast series so don't forget you can catch that next wednesday evening at 5 p.m on all good places that podcasts are found but until then i guess it's bye for now bye